Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter uh, 4 once again. And those songs today, including uh, Carla's song, fit so well with the context of the passage of Scripture we're looking at in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're looking at early verses 11 to 13, but uh, we have the full context that we'll look at today as well. Most of you have heard of the Mutiny on the Bounty. Some of you have read the book. And uh, if you are, need a refresher on that a little bit, this is a story of something that happened in the 1787 when a ship from England sailed for the South Sea Islands with a group of uh, sailors who were going to plant trees and, and uh, so forth in these islands and kind of, you know, meet with the natives and so forth. Uh, it was a very long voyage to get there, but once they got there, they were there for six months they got their tasks done, they planted the trees and so forth, and then Captain Bly, the captain of the ship, said it's time to go home. And when they did that, the people, the, most of the sailors uh, mutinied, so they have the mutiny on the bounty. Uh, they said, we don't want to leave, we love it here, we love the, the, the season, the climate, we love the women that are there, we love everything about this place, uh, we don't want to go home. And he insisted that they obey their commands, and so they mutiny, put him and, and uh, a few of his followers on a little, little boat, sent them out to sea, and they stayed on the island. Uh, incredibly, uh, Captain Bly and his men got back to England, and once they got back to England, they told the magistrates there what had happened, and they sent a, an expedition to uh, come and arrest those sailors. And eventually they got there, and when they, they did, they found 14 of them. They arrested them, took them back to England, and I think, think they executed them ultimately. But nine of those men that were on the island originally had gone to another island, a distant island. They didn't know where they were, so they couldn't find them. On this distant island, uh, they lived an incredibly sinful, degrading lifestyle. Uh, they had uh, they learned how to distill whiskey from some of the plants there, and of course that was a down downward spiral. Uh, they lived in, in immorality and debauchery of all kinds. And uh, ultimately, this, they started killing one another, started getting diseases. And eventually, all the natives that had gone with them, all the men anyway, had died. And all the sailors, except for one, had died from diseases and murder. That's the kind of situation they were in. The only guy left was a guy named Alexander Smith. And Alexander Smith found a Bible in the baggage of one of the other sailors. He had never read the Bible before. But he had nothing else to do much, so he opened up the Bible and began to read it. And as he read it, it began to transform his life. He began to understand the gospel, began to understand the things of the Lord, and he apparently became a Christian. And he began to teach all the people that were left were just women and children. He began to teach them the Word of God. Uh, he began to have classes with them and so forth. Twenty years later, uh, finally, a ship came to that island, 20 years after this, and they found on the island a people totally different than the ones that originally went there. They were people who were living decently and, 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 good, and good and moral, decent lives. They were living godly lives. There was no, there was no murders. There was no crime. Uh, there was virtually no disease. There was no illiteracy. And uh, they were living as God would have them live. What happened? What happened was the Word of God does what the Word of God does. It transformed lives. Now that story, maybe not as dramatic, but that story could be multiplied millions of times through the centuries of what the Word of God has done in the lives of people. And I give you that little story as an opener today as we go into the passage of Scriptures in Hebrews 4.12, which is probably one of the best known verses in all the Bible on the greatness of the Word of God. Uh, 
Many of you have memorized that verse. Most all of you know that verse. But often, as, as the case many times of well-known verses, verses we love, uh, that verse of Scripture was usually uh, memorized out of context. And that doesn't mean you miss everything from the verse, but it does mean you miss the major thrust of what the verse was put in there for. And so we want to remedy that today. We want to go to this passage of Scripture, and we want to see what the Lord is really trying to tell us in verses 11 to 13, and especially verse 12. And the context is important here. And this is what most people do not look at, the context, because the context leading up to these verses is very complicated, as we saw last week. It deals with the rest of God. And that, that the word rest shows up, by the way, starting in chapter 3, verse 11. Going through chapter 4, verse 11, it shows up 11 times. And a, a couple other inferences as well. The theme is the rest of God. And so that is what he's talking about here. And so we want to look today at these pa- this passage. And what we're going to see is the context is the rest of God. But there's three interrelated topics that we also want to look at in the verses we're seeing this morning. The first one is the importance of entering God's rest through, through faith and obedience. The importance of entering God's rest through faith and obedience. In verse 11 it says, Therefore, let us be diligent to rest, enter that rest, so that no one will fall through, the fo- through following the same example of disobedience. And so he speaks about that here. Uh, Part of the problem of understanding this passage is understanding what he means by rest. And that's complicated as we saw last week, so this is a bit of review. And if you were kind of confused last week, I hope this unravels this for you. But the rest of God is is not, there's not one singular rest that is mentioned here. There's actually four different ones that are mentioned in the text and that confuses us. First of all, in verses uh, 7 to 19 of chapter 3, he's talking about the rest that came for the people of Israel. The, the ones that left the exodus at the exodus from Egypt, the ones that entered the land, God, God promised them that if they would follow him out of Egypt, and he would give them a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember that? This is the promised land. This is the rest that he promised them. That Exodus generation did not enter the promised land because of disobedience, as we saw in our text last time. The next generation did under Joshua, but that generation did not. But that is the, the physical rest of coming out of bondage in Egypt. They were, in, they were enslaved in Egypt. They came out of bondage and they, gave, they entered the rest, the physical rest in the land of Canaan. But then in verse 4 of chapter 4, we have the rest, a second rest, it's God's rest. It says, for he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now this is a, a picture of God's rest. We, we recall that God himself had created the heavens and the earth in uh, six days and populated it with all the things he put on it. And then he rested. That means he ceased. He ceased his creative activities. And in that sense, God rested. When he was done, and remember this is key, when he was done, the, the, the earth at that point was perfect. There was no sin, and it was the Garden of Eden was the focal point where Adam and Eve was, and that was the rest that God designed for humanity. This is what God had created for us to enjoy forever, that rest that he had given us at that point when he rested from his creative activities. And then there's a third kind of rest, the rest of salvation. 
Now we're getting closer to where we're going to go here in a moment. But in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore let us, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Here he's talking about the salvation rest. And then drop down to verse 3. And he says, For we who have believed entered that rest. So here I believe he's talking about salvation. And he's talking about being set free from the bondage of sin. Just as the uh, Jews were set, were set free from the bondage of Egypt and in slavery, we have, been, we have been set free from the bondage, the mastery of sin. When you come to Christ, uh, your mastery changes. You were under the mastery of sin. Actually, your father was the devil. And now your father is the Lord Je- is, is, is the father of God, the Father God, and your Savior is Jesus Christ. And you now are in in his way, you, are, you have been saved from the bondage of sin, the mastery of sin. You are set free. That's the salvation he talks about. But just as the people of Israel, when they entered the Canaan land, the rest that God gave them, they battled with the enemies forever, right? They never ceased to have battles. So when you come to Christ, wouldn't it be wonderful if all the sin was gone, all the temptations were gone, all the, all the devil's uh, uh, efforts were, could, could totally cease, but that doesn't happen. As long as we're in this life, we are battling with the issues of sin, but we're no longer under the mastery of sin. Sin no longer calls the shots in our life. Sin no longer is our master. We've been set free from that. We've entered his rest there. But there's one more rest, and this is the one he was really getting to, and that is the eternal rest. And we see that in verses 8 uh, through 11. But look at, verse, look at verse 9 in particular. Well, look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He says, okay, salvation is a rest. You have been set free from the bondage of sin. But there remains yet a Sabbath rest, another rest, an eternal rest. And that is what he speaks of here. As God created the universe and, it, and rested from his activities, and at that point the, the world and the universe was designed exactly as he wanted it to be without sin, so one day we will now enter his eternal rest where that original design is, part of, is, is the essence of our lives. You and I have the eternal rest waiting for us up ahead. So those are the rests he's talking about. Primarily, he's talking about this eternal rest that cannot really be separated from salvation, but it's the end result. For example, I think I said it this way way last week, salvation is like entering the foyer of God's rest, but it's not the end product. There's more to come, and that will be found in the eternal rest that is found in him. So far, so good. Now I come to verse 11, and notice the therefores. This book is just peppered with therefores. It's almost one long, long run-on sentence in some ways. He says, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. All right, he's not only concerned about the eternal rest that is up there ahead for us, uh, his main thrust is the possibility that some in his audience will not enter that eternal rest. That's his concern. That's the thrust of what he's saying here. There are some who will not enter that eternal rest, and that's his concern. He wants to make sure that none of us do that. 
that none of his original audience does that, nor you or I. Now that leads to an important question. He says that we could miss that rest, but here's the, here's the question, how do you miss that rest? He says, by following the example of disobedience. But that leads to an issue, a very important theological issue, the most important theological issue you will ever think about. And that is, what is, what is the means of salvation? Are we saved through the works of obedience? Or, and, and can we lose our salvation because we're disobedient? Or are we saved by faith, by, by God's grace, received purely by faith on the basis of what Christ did for us on the cross? Well, we know from the rest of scriptures, and this is one of our hermeneutical principles, you know, principles of how to interpret the Bible is that the Scripture interprets Scripture, and it never contradicts. Therefore, we know from the rest of Scripture that we're saved not by works, but by the grace of God received by faith alone. Over 150 times in the New Testament, we're told we're saved not by works, but but by God's grace received by faith. 150 times. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that we looked at last week is the key passage, perhaps. Not of works, as anyone should boast. It's a gift of God. On that basis, then, what in the world is he talking about here when he talks about disobedience and so forth? And so we need to look very carefully. We have the foundation. We're not saved by works. So what is he concerned about? So we're going to have to back up here to chapter 3 and verse 12. And notice this rather complicated argument that, that comes together if, uh, if we're careful. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, which I can never find parts for uh, eventually comes together. I don't know how many times we're playing a, something like that at our house and everybody's sitting there, somebody stole the piece. We, we can't find a piece. It must be gone. Somebody must have threw it away. When we get done, it's all done. It's amazing how that works. Of course, I keep the last piece to the end, but that's, that's another piece, okay? But anyway, so we're going to put all the pieces together here. When it's done, I think you understand. In verse 12, he says this, verse, verse 12 of chapter 3, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart. First of all, Israel failed because they had an evil, unbelieving heart. Notice the word unbelieving. Then in verse 18, he said, And, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient. So you mark the word disobedient. Then in verse 19, he says, So we see that they were not able to enter because of what? Unbelief. He's peppering and going back and forth between unbelief and disobedience. We drop down to chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, if we had good news preached to us, just as they, did, they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They did not enter because of they lacked faith. That's unbelief. In verse 3, he says, For we who have believed enter that rest. We, we enter the rest through what? Belief. Verse 6, he says this, Therefore, another therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of what? Disobedience. Now he's going back to disobedience in verse 6. Then he moves over to verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fail through following the same example of what? Disobedience. And so we have disobedience and faith going back and forth. Then we add to that verse 6 of chapter 3. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, so we're in the house of God if we're his, if 
He holds fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. We are in his house if we hold fast our confidence. Verse 14, chapter 3. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Now that's a lot of verses. That's a lot of pieces to our puzzle. Let's put it all together. When we put it all together, the picture becomes clear. What have we learned? Salvation is by faith alone. We receive his gift by belief, by faith alone. But faith that does not produce obedience is not true saving faith. Saving faith will result in a transformed life. Saving faith faith will result in obedience. Again, not perfection. Every one of us stumble in many ways. We know that. But faith, God, saving faith is a, it is a transforming mechanism, if I want to call it that, through the power of the Spirit and the Word of God that changes us from the inside out. And it will change us so that we desire to obey. Our attitude changes, our values change, our heart changes, and we want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we can stay firmly placed in our disobedience, it is a sign that we do not know Him at all. And that is what our author is concerned about here. Verse 14, he says this, chapter, again, verse 14 of chapter 3, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. He's talking here about those who are mimicking the faith, those who are pretenders, those who are posers, those who might even have faked them, themselves out thinking they're saved, and he is deeply concerned about such people as we all should be, and we all should be about our own life as well. A few, uh, not, within the last couple of years, there has been an interesting phenomenon called deconstruction by some. Uh, the, these are Christian leaders, some of them kind of celebrity types, who have walked away from the faith they call it deconstructing, which is a misuse of the word found, out, found in the French postmodernists, but nevertheless they claimed it. And so they're deconstructing. They were once supposedly Christians. They were once Christian singers, Christian pastors, Christian whatevers. And now they have come to the place where they've totally rejected Jesus Christ and everything they've ever preached about Jesus Christ. The best known perhaps for most of us is Josh Harris who became a celebrity when he was just uh, early 20s when he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He went on to become still, uh, maybe not even 30 years old, he became the pastor of a sovereign grace church, a mega church, in which he was the pastor for a number of years there, and he was considered quite the celebrity of sorts. And then just a couple of years ago, he came out and said, I have dropped everything concerning Christianity. I've, I've divorced, he divorced his wife, he resigned from his church, he came out openly and says, I no longer believe anything that a Christian believes. And he wasn't, wasn't happy with just that. He wants everybody else to follow him. And so he came up with a course. I mean, how, what, is a, what is a failed pastor going to do to support himself? Well, he's going to come up with a course. And the course was this. Re, reframe your story, which includes a dis, dis, deconstruction starter pack for $275. So you can deconstruct your faith for just a mere $275. That's only, that's only Starbucks for three weeks, right? You, 
You can have your, your whole faith deconstructed, and he'll teach you how to do it. What an evangelist for deconstruction. There's a lot of people like this. Matter of fact, uh, a year ago, I don't have the recent statistic, but a year ago uh, on, uh, on Instagram, there were nearly 300,000 posts for the hashtag deconstruction. There's a lot of people who are following this train. It caught quite a bit of traction. What do we say about that? We say the author of Hebrews was right on the money 2,000 years ago. He knew there were people like this, people who were wonderful pretenders, who everybody thought were great spiritual leaders, who, who, people, who even faked themselves out, thinking they were Christians and followers of Christ. But our author says they fell short of the rest of God through disobedience. The disobedience was not the crime. The crime was the unbelief that led to the disobedience. And so we have such people, and our author, author is very concerned about that. So what is he going to do about that? Well, that leads us to the, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, verse 12. And it says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now that we have the full context of where he's going and his concern about those who are falling short of God's eternal rest. We're now ready to dissect verse 12. And in the big picture, what we have here is that the scriptures expose who we are. He's looking at the exposing nature, the penetrating nature of the word of God. We're going to start by looking at the forest, then we'll go back to the trees Look at the big picture first. Let's start with the definition of the Word of God. Some have kicked this back and forth. What is he talking about with the Word of God? What does he mean by the Word of God here? Well, I don't think we have to really guess because he's already told us earlier in the book exactly what he meant by that. So go back to chapter 1, the very first verses. Here, here it is. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways... In these last days has spoken to us through His Son. There's God's Word. There's been two periods of time when God has spoken to us definitively in Revelation. The Old Testament revelation through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. If you want to read God's Word, if you want to hear God's Word, go back to the 39 books in the Old Testament and read them out loud and you can hear God speak to you out loud. Right there it is, God's Word. But there's a second period and that is He spoke to us through His Son as Christ came, he began to teach. Now, how do we know that the words of Jesus and the words of the prophet, how do we know what they are? Because they've been put in, his, in the scriptures. But look over to chapter 2, verse 3. How do we know we got it right? How do we know we got the words of Jesus right? Jesus is not here. Look at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by us, uh, to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders, by mir various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. How do we know we got it right? Because God, God had it handed down to us through those who heard, through the apostles, and He confirmed the witness of the apostles through miraculous sign gifts that He gave them in verse 4 to prove that they were apostles as 2 Corinthians 12, 12 tells us. 
How do we know we got it right? Because of what God says right there. Where is that message now? Where is the word of God now? The apostles are gone. They're not giving us new revelation. It's found in the scriptures. The word of God is found today in the word of God. The scriptures, the Bible is synonymous with this. This is what he's talking about here. Now, as we look at the verse, the verse talks about the word of God. Here is the big picture of what he's saying. God's word cannot be deceived. God's word cannot be deceived. We can, we're going back to chapter 4, by the way, verse 12. Uh, the word of God penetrates our hearts and reveals the true nature of every person. If an individual lacks saving faith, if they're insincere about Christ, if they're just going through the motions, saying the right words, going through the rituals of Christianity on occasion, if that's what they're doing, then the Word of God will expose them in due time, and they will see what's really going on. That's what happened to Joshua Harris. The Word of God exposed him for exactly what he was, a one who was a pretender. He did not know God. You can fool the pastor, you can fool your church, you can fool yourself, but you can't fool God. And so the first thing that the Word does, and this is key, the first thing that the Word does is to reveal our sin. It reveals our sinfulness. No one comes to the Lord until they first recognize their sinfulness and their hopelessness. And the Word exposes that. Now this is very important. The Word of God has as one of its key functions to reveal to us who we are and why we need Him. It sounds negative, perhaps, that He's going to reveal the sins, our sinfulness, but until we recognize our sinfulness, until we recognize our hopelessness, no one will ever come to Jesus Christ. And the Word of God exposes our need for Him. And opens up that door for us. Our author has described the word of God then. In that way. That's what the word of God is. Now he goes on. To give us numerous descriptions. Of this precious word that he has for us. Let's take a look at those. He says that the word of God is living. The word of God is not dead words. It's not dried ink on Indian paper. And I don't know what happened there. But uh, I just broke my pulpit. That's all right. We'll live through that. Okay. I can actually see better now. Maybe that's the plan. Okay. Let's get back to this. The Word, the word of God is, is some, the, several of the uh, postmodern type, e, emergent church types, charismatic types, different ones like that, have said that, that we need a fresh word from God today. That the Bible is like something stuffed and mounted on a wall. It's dead words. We need fresh revelations from God. No, we don't. The Word of God is alive. It's, God, it's the breath of God. That's what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's God-breathed. It's the Word of God. It's alive. And that means that whatever God sends it to do in the lives of people, you know what it does? It transforms people. It's living. It's working in us. It's working to change us into the, more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the, the Word of God is alive. We need not be worried about the Word of God. I, most of, many of us who know this quote from Spurgeon just love it. Spurgeon once said, as he was saying, talking about trying to defend the Word of God, 
He says, there's no need to defend a lion. Just let it out of its cage. It'll take care of itself. Right? You don't have to defend the Bible. Just let it out. Proclaim it. It takes care of itself because it's alive and you can't kill it. Number two, it's active. The word active, this is an important word. It means effectual. You might jot that down in your notes. Effectual. That means it accomplishes exactly what God sends it to do. And it always accomplishes exactly what God intended for it to do. It's effectual. Now, a, a great commentary on that verse is found in Isaiah 55, 11. Now, I know some of you, a number of you, get uh, the sermon manuscripts ahead of time. And uh, I send it out to 84 different people on Wednesday usually. And also it's on our network uh, for the day's activities. It's right there. So you can get that. But, uh, but let me say this. When, when the... What you're getting by Wednesday is not the finished product. So I'm working on this all week long. And matter of fact, to the very moment I walk out the door at home, I'm adjusting, I'm tweaking, I'm trying to make this understandable. I'm not changing the essence, but I'm trying to make it understandable. And so when I was looking at my notes on this, it says Isaiah 5.11 in my notes I sent you. And some of you might have looked that up and might have been a little surprised because it's a verse about waking up in the morning and getting drunk. Yeah. And, and how, how bad that is. Don't, don't do that. And, that. and that really doesn't fit this passage of Scripture at all. So if you looked it up and said, that guy's nuts, what is he talking about? Well, that's the problem. So now here's the real deal. And if you want the real manuscript that's really done, let me know. I can give you the real thing at the end of the week. But anyway, here's what that verse says. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. God's word never goes out and does not accomplish what God desires. Now, sometimes we wonder about that, don't we? We look at this messed up world we lived in. Dave prayed about that a while ago. It is hard to not, you look around, the whole world's a mess, isn't it? So many awful things going on, and, and you wonder if the word of God is making any effect at all in the lives of so many people. And, uh, and preachers and missionaries sometimes get very wiped out about this. They, they sometimes they, they preached and proclaimed the Word of God to congregations for, for years and years and years. And when it's all said and done, nobody seems to be changing. It's very discouraging at times. And yet we turn to a passage like this one in Isaiah, and God says, My word never comes back to me void. That's the King James. Never comes back to me empty. Never goes out and does not accomplish what I want it to accomplish. It may not be what you expect. It may not be in your timing. But I am using my word to do what I want to do. And it will be effectual. The word of God is always transformative and effectual. Maybe we don't see it, but it is. Number three, the third description, it's penetrating. Piercing as far as the division of a, well, let's go back a little bit, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow. Well, we have here then this, this penetrating nature. He's not saying here, and this is confusing to, confusing to some, he's not saying the Word of God divides the soul and spirit. Uh, I don't know how you would divide the soul and spirit if you look at the Scripture's definitions of them. But, uh, but I, I believe these are just part of the inner nature, the immaterial nature of humanity. But if you disagree with me, it doesn't matter. He's not saying the Word of God takes a, a meat cleaver and cuts apart our soul and spirit. The Word of God is like a spear. 
It penetrates through. It pierces through. So that, and, and his point is this. The word of God goes to the very heart, the very essence of everybody's life who pays attention to it. When you hear the word of God, it goes right to the heart of your inner side and exposes who you are. Even so far as he says later on, to expose our motives, which sometimes we don't even know ourselves. And he says it exposes those things, it pierces that. In other words, in our context, we cannot bluff our way out of anything when it comes to God and his word. We cannot have secrets that the word of God does not expose. Nothing is hidden from him and nothing is hidden from his word, including our motives and our thoughts. There's a, there's a cute story given by R.C. Sproul, of all people, who I've never thought was very humorous. But R.C. Sproul tells this story. I've given it before. There was a burglar who was casing a neighborhood, trying to see when people go on vacation so he could break into their houses. And he, he recognized one uh, couple leaving for a vacation. They packed up and left. So he waited tonight, and he went back to the house. Everything was dark. And uh, he, uh, he rang the doorbell, no response. He uh, picked the lock and walked in and says, Anybody here? Just want to make sure. And out, out cried a voice that says, I see you, and Jesus sees you. That startled him a lot. I see you, and Jesus sees you. And then he turned on the light, and he saw it was a parrot that was saying, I see you, and Jesus sees you. Ah, He's home free, except he looked down below the cage of the parrot, and there was a big Doberman pincher. (laughs) And the parrot said to the Doberman pincher, Attack, Jesus, attack. <laughs> now, I have no idea if that's a true story. Uh, but I, you know, I, I just can't fault R.C. Sproul. He surely told a true story. I don't know. Either way, the point is this. You cannot fake God's word out. You will be exposed by God's word. It is a complete joke for you to think that you can wrap, wrap yourself around yourself in such a way that the Word of God cannot penetrate in your heart to show you what you are. One more thing, it's also discerning. It says here, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word judge here is a word, we get our word critic. And uh, we think of critic as a criti- critical person or criticizer but the word itself was, a, was used to, for someone who ex- possessed discernment. They could look at issues, they could discern, they could w- uh, work through it. it. It's where we get our thing today about critical thinking. The ability to, to work through hard issues and come up with critical thinking and proper insights. The word does that with our, it says, our thoughts and our intentions. The word cuts through our words and our smiles and our pious looks and goes straight to the heart. It strips away all the pretense and leaves behind the real thing. This double-edged sword then not only reveals our hearts, it draws our hearts. When we see the hopelessness of our situation and the fact that the Word of God has exposed us for what we are, it draws us to Him, or it should, because we recognize there is no hope in ourselves. The most famous invitational hymn ever written was by an invalid lady who wrote the song, Just As I Am. 
And she lay on her bed thinking about her own spiritual ineptness and sinfulness. She wrote these words, just as I am without one plea. She looked into her own heart through the word of God and saw that if she wanted to go before Almighty God, she had no plea. She had no evidence to give him to say, look, I am a good person. I I am worthy of heaven. I I I should be let in your eternal rest. She had no plea except this one, but that thy blood was shed for me. I come before for the heavenly father with the blood of Jesus Christ. My plea is not me. My plea is the, is the blood of Christ to shed for me on Calvary. And that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. God calls her and calls us to him. Another stanza in that famous hymn goes this way. Just as I am, thou will receive. Wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe O Lamb of God, I come. I come. She can come before the throne of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ who invites us to come by faith alone. But one of the designs of God's word then is to cut through all the deceptions, all the self-deceptions, and reveal to us who we really are so we can come to him for the healing grace that's found only in Christ. But there's one more thing we want to talk about, the exposing knowledge of God, verse 13. Sometimes this verse is like a throwaway. We've been so impressed with verse 12 that we ignore verse 13, but he is not done with us yet. He says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God exposes who we are, but that, what has been exposed was already known by God. The Word of God and the person of God cannot be separated in that way. Now, here's the way I've given it in very concise language. The Word reveals to you who you are and why you need Christ. But God, verse 13, already knows that. Nothing's hidden from His sight. He already knows Everything you don't yet know until the Word of God reveals that to you. Nothing is being hidden from Him. We can never then deceive God. To drive the point home, then, he uses a very interesting word here in verse 13. It's a word, lay bare. Uh, it's uh, an unusual word. And it, has, it was used three different ways in ancient cultures, according to one insightful commentator. That might help us understand it. It was used of a wrestler who was wrestling with someone else and they didn't seem to be able to, to win, either one of them to win, until finally one of them got a chokehold on the other, pinned them to the ground, and won the match. The picture then is we, can, we may escape God for a time, but not ultimately. Ultimately, we will not escape him. Ultimately, we can never evade him. We may think we can. Matter of fact, that's the, that's the great deception, isn't it? I can trick God. I can fake God out. I can, I can get around God. But that's a delusion. Ultimately, the Lord pins us to the ground with the truth of himself. A second way this word is used is as of flaying animals. It's, it's to take an animal and cut an animal open. God lays his skin back, so to speak, 
and reveals our insides. There's nothing that is hidden from him, not even our innermost secrets. And thirdly, it was used of a dagger placed underneath of a criminal who is going to face execution. They would place a dagger right underneath his chin. So it pointed right underneath his chin so that he could not lower his head or he would cut his own throat. And then they would take that criminal before his executioner or his king or whoever he was going before and he would have to look at that executioner eyeball to eyeball. He could not, in humility, duck his head. He could not avoid. He had to look in the eye of his judge. This is the same word used here. We cannot avoid looking in the eye of God. He sees us, and we will one day see him, and we will see who we really are. No wonder then, in 10, verse, chapter 10, verse 31, he says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's no wonder that the author of Hebrews is so concerned about his readers. It's no wonder that he presses home warning after warning after warning throughout this book. In his readership, in his audience, were some who fully expected to one day meet Jesus Christ with joy. They're going to enter the eternal kingdom. They're looking forward to life with God forever. And they did not know that their, their pretense was going to be revealed. And they were going to be seen as frauds. And they will face eternal judgment. Jesus warned of the same thing in John, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. They did not know they would be terrified in the presence of God. Our salvation, only salvation that results in saving faith, through a saving faith that changes our lives, is true salvation. He wanted them to know that. Enough of the pretense. You need to see the truth. You ever played hide and seek with a three-year-old? And the three-year-old goes somewhere and shuts its little eyes and doesn't think you can see it. And you walk around, I, you can't see me because I can't see you. I got my eyes shut. That's a spiritual hide and seek that is deadly. God says, I see, I know, and one day you will come before me. Now, if I left the sermon right there, you might go home depressed. I hope not. I want to say one more thing. This is next week. Previews of coming attractions. Why did he go to the next verses with the next therefore, verses 14 to 16? What's he leading us up to? Because of who we are. Because the scriptures have exposed us for who we are. Because God knows who we are. What do we desperately need? The central theme of the book. A great high priest who can be for, there for us to give us mercy and grace in time of need. That's why we need a great high priest because the word of God has exposed us for who we are and what we need. But Christ stands ready to be our high priest to deal with the sins in our lives and give us grace and mercy in time of need. Friends, as we close out today, I just want to say there are people, has to be people in this audience that that do not know Christ. You're a pretender. Let the word of God Soak into your hearts, reveal your sin, and may you come to him this day, just as I am, without one plea, but that the blood of Christ was shed for me. Father, we thank you for the word, this great passage of scripture that we all love and know. May we understand it correctly today and understand how you use it in our lives. And Lord, I do pray for those, just as the ancient author of Hebrews did, 
I pray for those that are not true believers, who truly don't know you, who are, who are going to fall short of the eternal uh, kingdom that you have for us, the eternal rest. Lord, may they see themselves, Lord, through the exposure of the word today. And may they come before you in full repentance and in full faith for forgiveness of sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.